A recent McKinsey study on women in the workplace showed a 21% profit lift with female leadership. And then when you add in racial diversity, the profits went up to 36%. The crazy thing is that women leaders still only account for 10% of the Fortune 500 CEOs and are only paid 83% of their male counterparts in the United States. What we know is to have a high-achieving organization, we need women and men of diverse backgrounds at the top leading together. This means working side-by-side as true allies. In this interview for women and men, you will get a new perspective on the problems and solutions of equality in the workplace. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Braum and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is Women's Leadership Success, and today I am so excited to talk to Julie Kratz, who's somebody that's actually, I in, is in my community in LinkedIn, and I've been following her for years. I've read both, <clears throat> excuse me, both of her books. She's a highly acclaimed TEDx speaker, an inclusive leadership trainer who leads teams and produces re- results in corporate America after experiencing many career pivot points, which I'm going to ask you about. And she's a frequent keynote speaker, podcast host, and executive coach. Welcome, Julie. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's it's such a pleasure. Um, you know, you've been doing this work for a long time. So many people I interview who are authors, they're kind of maybe newbies to what they're doing. But so I want to ask you, how long have you been doing this? And also want to know, What's changed since when you started doing it to now? What what has evolved for you in the, in doing this? Uh, I wish more had evolved and changed, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, nine years. It's been a wild ride, much like you and your podcast. We've been at it for a while. And that's, I think, how we can show up is the consistency factor of knowing where the conversation's been, where it needs to go, and you know, shaping and helping be a part of that positive narrative. So for me, when I first started in this work, it was very centered on women. And I'm remiss to say it was very much white, straight, you know, able-bodied women too. And so I thought about that and I was like, there's an obvious opportunity for allyship here. And that dawned on me a couple of years in when you know, I was at women's leadership conferences and like men were there, like, what am I supposed to do? And women of color were sharing very different lived experiences. And so I just thought, you know, this whole idea to be allies. And so that's where the conversation I think has changed. Because five years ago, when I first wrote about allyship, you know, we didn't even know the word to use. And now, you know, in 2021, allyship was like the word of the year. Um, so people were searching it, you know, Googling it because of all the, you know, great things. Well, much needed social justice work that was happening in 2020. And so now where the conversation is, is I think it's 
it's intersectionality for sure. Um, women have very different experiences and not just from a race perspective, but abilities and neurodiversity and LGBTQ plus. I mean, there's so many different age, so many dimensions of diversity that thread through the gendered experience, um, especially as I talk about it in the workplace. But also we need more allies. You know, we have seen a retreat, you saw a surge and then a retreat and much like most social movements, which this is a social human movement, is we tend to take a step forward and then a step back. And we really need more allies to keep us moving forward. That's beautiful. And you ask a question in your, in your latest book, why is fixing women not working? <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> Yeah, well, why isn't it? Why doesn't that work? I mean, a lot of the interviews I do is about what women need to do to help fix it, which is a good idea, but it doesn't totally work. Can you? No. Well, the workplace hasn't changed that much. Of course, we've seen tremendous change towards a hybrid environment with more flexibility in the last few years, much overdue, in fact. But yeah, when I first wrote Lead Like an Ally, it was pre-pandemic. And the stories that so many women were sharing with me is like, you know, it's not really me. I can like beef up my leadership skills and my confidence. You know, we love to tell women like negotiate more, be more confident, but not too confident. You know, it's all this like weird feedback because the workplace was built by men, largely by white men for them to succeed. And so the rules, the playbook, I mean, even using a sports analogy for it just shows you how masculine culture is in, in the United States and really globally. And we're at a time where women need to rewrite the rules for the future workplace at the very time we have younger generations coming in, not only with just an inclusive mindset, but a demand for diversity and inclusion, which past generations may have felt it was nice, but not a must have in ways that this generation does. I think women are really positioned well as the inclusive leaders of the future but they don't need to change. The workplace needs to change. They don't need to be more confident. The people need to accept more confident women. <laughs> and instead of thinking about flexibility as a women's issue, this is a human issue. You ask men with small children, they want to spend more time with their kids too. Like stop making this gendered. It is a human, it is a human need that we're asking for to humanize the workplace, really. Oh, I love, I love what you're saying. Um and to digress just a bit, could you tell us what percent of women are in C-suite? Uh, just like roughly 20%. So um, listeners, you're probably familiar with the McKinsey um, report, the Women in the Workplace report comes out every October. And I you know, mark it on my calendar. It's like my, I can talk about it as like my Christmas holiday. <laughs> getting that. It's like, what's changed? What's changed? But Sadly, since they've been reporting on it for the last six years, not much has changed. The representation numbers are stagnant at best. I mean, we're talking about like one percentage point differences. And, you know, we're at a record number of female CEOs in Fortune 500 at 10%. 10%. <laughs> Very few women of color. The United States we're talking about, right? Yeah, but global companies. Um, yeah, so we're just not seeing the growth and traction the other interesting caveat to this that I just became aware of because I'm doing a lot of work in Europe and they have they have mandates on and this will this will permeate the United States as well, but they have mandates on gender representation because there aren't enough people. They have a huge labor shortage problem, which we also have, but not to the degree that they have with their aging population. So what the EU has done is step in and say, by 2025, you will have 40% representation at a manager level of women. Well, 
that they're not even close to that right now. So where are you going to find these women? And then it begs the pipeline question of, okay, well, we'll just promote women there. Well, then who's going to backfill those women? So if you don't get started on it now, it really starts to like compound and difficulty to catch up later. So that means we need to have acceleration programs for women and not fixing women, but hey, we're going to make sure you have access to sponsors and mentors and you know allies just the way that most men do in our organization. We're going to level set the playing field. We're going to have equitable strategies for hiring, promotion, pay equity. Pay equity is something that's going to have to be managed under um, the new ESG requirements too. They're coming down from Europe. So all of these things are starting to like bubble up and companies that are smart and proactive right now will absolutely have the competitive advantage. I mean, that first mover advantage they could have is really powerful. Um, so it's, 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 we're, we're, I think we're at a, a tipping point. I wouldn't say critical mass. <laughs> a critical mass is when we get to like 30% representation. We're still a ways away from that here in the U.S., especially Europe might hit that, you know, here soon. But once you get that kind of, you know, representation, it starts to tip the scales a bit, right? Because you're not the only woman, you're not tokenized, right? You need more than just one woman, otherwise there's infighting. So that three out of 10 is a really nice flywheel that kind of takes effect. Wow. It's, it, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, a lot. In your book, you talk about some specific steps that allies can do that will help. But maybe maybe I should ask you what an ally is before we go into the steps. What what is an ally and how do we get them? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to kind of co-create the definition of allyship. So when I present an allyship, I purposely don't have like a definition slide because I think it's so... In my research, you know, I found even the term itself, people don't love, you know, some people like accomplice or activist. And there's a total continuum here. So when I'm talking about allyship, at the most basic level, supporting somebody with a different background from you, okay? So obviously men could be allies to women. White people can try to be allies to people of color. You know, if I don't have a disability, I could try to be allies for somebody with a disability. So those are just some common examples. But Digging deeper into like what an ally really does, you know, there's just some skill sets that I can usually just read somebody very easily in the moment to see if they have these skill sets and they can absolutely develop them too. But it's a mindset. It's a mindset shift of it's not about me. It's about the person I'm trying to support, which we love our egos and advice, but that is not what an ally does. You know, rescue cape needed, not helpful, not sustainable. <laughs> We've seen countless examples of saviorism over time that has really quelled, you know, the allyship movement. So instead, and sympathizing, I don't have the live experience you do, right? I haven't walked around in your proverbial shoes, but can I try to understand the perspective? Can I try to take on your perspective, even if it's like extremely different from mine? And this is where the rub happens, because once you start to realize people have different lived experiences by things absolutely outside of their control, their upbringing, their childhood, the skin color, you know, gender identity, you're like, wow, that didn't happen to me, right? And, and then once you have that empathy valve open, you can create what I call empathy bridges to other people. You can say, hey, I may not have had that experience, but I've heard enough stories about that lived experience that... 
I'm going to make sure if something like that happens when I'm around, that I'm going to keep my radar up, but I'm going to see something. I'm going to say something. I'm going to call somebody in. I'm going to help someone else see that they can be better. And you know, the example I use that I didn't have the lived experience of, but every woman of color I interviewed for my book said, yeah, people try to touch my hair at work. I was like, what? Hair touching? You know, the first time I heard it, I was like, that is unbelievably inappropriate. No one does that to me. I'm a white woman. Well, you hear the story, you know, just countless stories. And you're like, oh, shoot, this is like a real thing. Thankfully, I haven't seen this or done this myself, but it's obviously a real thing. And so then the empathy valve opens up of like, if I see something or someone's asking, saying inappropriate things about professionalism with hair, I mean, it's all sorts of code language here. Yeah, I'm going to make sure to is, you know, call somebody in to be better on those occasions. And so that's what an ally does, shows up over and over and over again. And the two words I use most often are consistency and intentionality. Show up intentionally in a consistent way. And that's what people want. They do not want this like, I'm going to show up at the protest, post on social media how outraged I am. It's more like, no, do you, do you keep showing up? Do you show up when it's not in the news cycle? Do you proactively build relationships with people with different backgrounds from you? Because that's what an ally really does. And they take on that mindset of, it's not necessarily selfless. I mean, we should be doing it for the other person, but it honestly has tremendous reciprocal benefits. When you do this work well, you get, I don't know. I mean, I can't even describe it just like a human connection that comes out of this. That's helped me be a better leader, a better caregiver, hopefully a better partner some days. And it's helped. Michelle was frustrated. She'd been passed over for a VP role in her company for over 15 years. She didn't know why and she felt stuck. She found me on LinkedIn and started coaching with me. Among the things that she improved was she gained greater confidence in her abilities, she learned to speak up in meetings, and her ability to sell herself with upper management improved greatly. Within three months, she'd been promoted to VP. If you would like to improve your leadership potential and advance your career like Michelle did, here are some questions you might want to ask yourself to know if you're on the right track. Am I realizing my potential? Do I want to have more influence and impact? Do I feel stuck in my career? Have I been passed over for promotion? Do I aspire to sea level or a whole new opportunity? If you can relate to any of these questions and you are ready for a better version of yourself, I can help you, guaranteed. For almost 30 years, I have helped over 250 leaders realize their potential. If you want a better job, I can help you achieve that with an increase in pay and much faster than you thought. I have a proven track record of helping current and future leaders just like you increase their confidence, develop executive presence, leapfrog over the competition for plum positions, navigate organizational politics, have more influence and impact, and attract champions to advance their careers. And so if you are willing to take action now and you qualify like Michelle did, I would love to connect with you over a complimentary one-on-one -on -one leadership and career discovery session to help you realize your potential, 
and become a more influential leader or find a better job much faster than you thought possible. If there's a good fit, we can discuss how I can help you. If not, you'll walk away with some actionable ideas. If this sounds good to you, please connect with me on LinkedIn and message me for my Leadership and Career Advancement calendar link. Or go to www.tinyurl.com forward slash Sabrina Coaching and apply for your session today. You'll be glad you did. You'll be amazed at what we can do together. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah, you, you know, so my question was going to be, how do we clean up the culture? You're, you're building a community, a, a real community of connection with people that's going to change your organization and increase your profits, your help you connect with your customers. Mm-hmm. Because we're also talking, our customers are the different colors and the different um, different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so much data on those. Back to McKinsey, I mean, they've shown a 21% profit lift you know, with female leadership. Yeah, uh, We layer in racial diversity, it goes up to like 36%. So that's why when you just keep talking actively about this and it's community building, I mean, back to, you know, women um, and just our, our socialization over time as, as human beings, you know, we were the community gatherers and builders back in the hunting and gathering days, men did, you know, hunt and, you know, were more independent, whereas women were really in charge of keeping the group together. And so transcend that to today, I think women are in a very unique position from our evolution and our in our socialization. This isn't always natural or biological. I don't want to suggest that so much of our gender identity is socialized. But how we socialize women really is about inclusion, caring about other people, <laughs> listening, using our emotions. You know, these are these are strengths. These are superpowers that we have as women that are desperately needed in the workplace today. Yeah. How about stretching uh, talent equality? Equally, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Equity and and equality are different things. I know people get those mixed up. The the two letters are very different, but equality is the goal. Equity is the strategy to get there. So equity is about leveling the playing field. Well, here's what happens with women in the workplace is they don't get feedback at the same rate that their male counterparts do. Because who's giving the feedback? High ups that are 80% men. Men feel more comfortable giving each other feedback, right? They're afraid like we're going to make her cry or how's she going to react? So silly. So women need to get equitable feedback. Feedback's how we grow, right? And so getting really crystal clear with growth opportunities for women and providing that equitably. And if so if you notice you're, you know, surrounding yourself by people like you, A, that's human, and B, you can do better. So be equitable with how you provide feedback. And the other piece is coaching, a coaching mindset. And a lot of times, you know, I got my master coach certification way back when I started this business. And I had a big misunderstanding that coaching was like therapy, or it was like um, rah-rah sports coaching, (laughs) like having all the answers. Coaching is really about listening. And so what's beautiful about that style of leadership, again, that women tend to, you know, be socialized to do better than men is to ask good questions and truly open-ended, curious questions, help the person self-discover their path forward and listen and play back to them what you heard. Well, 
we tend, again, to coach other people, challenge other people that are like us. So we have a bit of a chicken and egg problem in corporate, right? If if the high levels continue to be dominated by men, men will continue to provide feedback and coach other men to step into those roles. So we really have to disrupt the system and, and rethink how we develop leadership here. If we want more women represented in leadership, what are we doing differently to attract women? Rather than what organizations will say is like, they just don't apply or want to be promoted. Like baloney. That is absolutely nothing a woman has ever said. Maybe one, maybe in a specific situation, but I guarantee you more times than not, you are wrong about that assumption. You need to do something differently, not them. Well, how do you establish an ally network? Uh, I you know I think about diversification as one of the strongest ally strategies. Again, if we were, were to you know develop a process around this, because you know a lot of us have a lot going on in our lives, maybe not think about allyship as much as I do. As I was playing Scrabble with my kids and did the word allyship, <laughs> maybe not everyone puts that on their Scrabble board. I don't know. But seriously, if you if you want to like systematize this and make it as easy as possible to have a habit of this. Is step one is really diversify your network. So who do you spend most of your time with? So pull open your phone, your calendar, your email, text message, whatever, wherever you got some data. Who do you correspond with? Who do you choose to correspond with most often? Who are your friends? I mean, you know, family's family. You may not be able to choose them, but like, who are you spending time with? Who's coming to your house for dinner? Are they like you? Probably if you're like most people, not saying that's a bad thing. My, My network was so like me, when I first started doing this work, it was appalling how much work I I felt I had to do. But the thing is, is actually not that hard when you get intentional and consistent about it. Uh-huh. Broaden who you follow on LinkedIn. You know, we've been connected on LinkedIn, for example, like find people. When I, I was so happily surprised to look at my feed for Juneteenth this year. I just see so many people of color commenting about, you know, how to honor the holiday. And I was like, oh my gosh, my feed is like full of just rich insight. So, but that's been an intentional strategy. So who do you follow on social, whether it's LinkedIn or elsewhere? And then two, who do you spend time with? You know, really think about the places you choose to spend time. Where do you volunteer? Where do your kids go? What camps do your kids go? I mean, it's just so many questions you have to kind of unpack, but just diversify the people you're spending time with. They'll help you be better too. And and we don't want to put that burden of education on them. But you can, once you develop that strong ally tie, you can lean on them a little bit for those tough questions or things you really struggle with. So that's what I say. Just start start with developing a process to spend time with people that are different from you. And then it just kind of naturally builds from there. Beautiful. So this is a different kind of question, but how how do we, how can women manage uh, meeting behaviors that are dysfunctional like man interruptions or mansplaining. <laughs> I wish those weren't real things. I, I really struggle with that language because it, it's kind of polarizing. It like makes men like seem evil, but it's not. I mean, these are real things. So mansplaining um, kind of goes in two forms. One, it's the over-explaining, like, oh, you wouldn't understand this. Let me walk you through everything. Or it's the under-explaining, like, you wouldn't understand this, so like, just move on. And if a woman, you've never been treated like that at a car place of any type, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But this happens in the workplace a lot and it's really condescending behavior and it keeps women from learning and growing and being treated like equal humans. So uh-huh. bad stuff there. The other thing, um, man interruptions, I think you mentioned, or bro appropriations are another form of this. 
So there's all these like terms. What, what did you say? Bro appropriation. So this is one, I actually learned this from um, two guys I just love. They wrote the book, The Good Guys, Brad Johnson and David Smith. Okay. Bro appropriations is an umbrella term for mansplaining, interruptions, taking credit for ideas. So it's like these little like appropriations, kind of like microaggressions that are done by men that tend to be done to women. Yes, men do interrupt each other too, but women are three times more likely to get interrupted. Okay, so we're the receivers more often. We're the note takers, the ones that do the non-promotable tasks. So all of these things, what I encourage people to do is just keep your radar up in a meeting. And we actually have um, an inclusion guide on our website to help you with this is downloadable free resource. And it's just questions to ask before you go into a meeting of like, who's speaking? How, how are we going to make sure speaking is equitable amongst the group? Because right? we also have the air hogs, the dominators. And who's going to make decisions? Who doesn't make decisions? I mean, just think about these things because they tend, and myself included, I tend to defer to men to make decisions because that's like pff, the 20 years I've been in corporate, <laughs> how the world's worked. We need to question these assumptions and it starts with ourselves and it starts with holding others accountable, especially if you're leading meetings and meetings are a huge snapshot of a culture. Don't think it's just one meeting or just one interruption. It's, it's a snapshot of like what's acceptable and what's not acceptable here. Beautiful. What about microaggressions? Yeah. So microaggressions, similar to appropriation. So I'm sorry to throw all these terms at you, but microaggressions really is short for like non-inclusive behavior. These can happen more broadly than just to women. So microaggressions are probably more commonly used actually in the race space where it's things like the hair touching. You know, you could even argue that's more of a macro aggression. Um, and there's kind of a sliding scale, right, of slight things to more overt things. You know, if somebody says something blatantly problematic, like all women are like this or all people of color do this, yeah, that that's not a microaggression. That's like a very biased, like <laughs> problematic behavior, like time out. We need to deal with that. But microaggressions are often more common. They're subtle. They're less overt. Um, they're done behind the scenes. They're not meant with or negative intention usually, but the impact is negative. It's like, mm, we um, don't have enough um, qualified candidates uh, of diverse backgrounds, or mm -hmm. we don't want to lower the standards for diversity. And it's like, what are you saying there, right? So it's starting to get people to question the assumptions that they're making based on those lived experiences that are probably insular, like we've been talking about, and helping them be better. And before their behavior manifests in a microaggression, something they say or do that's harmful, if only we could like slow that down a little bit and just say, how do I know that's true? What information do I have to justify what I'm saying right now? And if you just pause yourself and pause others, it's like, oh, shoot, right? Um, I personally love the flip it to test it that Kristen Pressner has. And it's just, hey, this is a man. Would you say the same thing? You know, my favorite example is like, we tend to congratulate men for doing basic caretaking tasks, whereas women, we tend to like punish them for it in the workplace man picks his kid up from soccer practice or, you know, medical appointment. It's like, oh, what a great dad. No, flip it. How are you going to treat a woman that does the same exact thing? How often is she going to do that? How committed is she to the workplace? She missed that meeting again, right? It, it's just totally unfair. <laughs> yeah. So what can we as women do to get allies? How do we do this? 
How do we get more allies? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's a two-way street. Um, what I, I usually teach like an ally umbrella framework, and we can call it an umbrella for a reason because there's so many different spokes and roles that allies right. can play. But, but there's really five that I found that are very quintessential to the work. It usually takes on one of these flavors. Um, the first one is a mentor. So if you're a woman in a corporate setting, who could you mentor? Like other people, diff- I would say just different from you. Try, And I think we also need to break this whole like women need to mentor women thing. Like it's just not as helpful. I, I would argue I learned a lot more from my male mentors and, and mentors of color. So find people to mentor you that are different from you and mentor people that are different from you. Okay. And that could be race, gender, age, et cetera. Lots of different options there. You'll learn more. Then sponsors as another flavor of allyship, another spoke, if you will. Sponsors are in rooms where decisions are made about you, your career. Okay, so sponsorship is talking about you. Mentorship is talking to you. Obviously, a very big difference there. Not that mentorship isn't important, but sponsorship is actually where women tend to wane. 80% of sponsors, because they're in positions of power and with privilege, tend to be men, white men. Okay, so how do we kind of break that cycle? so that we sponsor folks that are different from us and get people to speak up in rooms that we're at. And how can we sponsor others if we're in decision-making capacities? Um, The the advocate, which is, you know, a lot of things we're talking about, meeting behaviors, you know, diversifying your network, et cetera, so you can advocate for others. And then the last two coaching we talked about with listening skills and reflective questions. And the last one is the challenger. And and that's the one that I see least utilized because it feels challenging. You know, maybe we need a different title, but it is somebody that gives that feedback, right? And stretches things equitably and isn't afraid to upset a woman or challenge gender norms. And that's something that I think, especially in a polarized political landscape and a workplace where people are fraught with, you know, fear of saying the wrong thing, they're going to hurt someone's feelings. Well, you know, I like to preface any feedback I get with people is like, hey, I care about you. I want to share something with you. That genuinely is not going to tick somebody off. Now, you got to watch what you say, you know, use I statements, ask questions, et cetera, but challenging. Um, so those roles, really two-way straight. Who are your mentors, sponsors, advocates, coaches, challengers, and who are you doing that for? And if they're mirror, mirror on the wall, you've got a problem. Uh-huh. Great. So I want to ask you about LGBTQ+. Um, I have... I do coaching and I have some wonderful clients that fall into this category. Um, how can we how can we help um, our friends that are in this category be more successful? What what can we do? Yeah, I love that question. Um, yeah, LGBTQ plus, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And Q is for queer questioning, and then the HOS is all-encompassing for other gender identity um, and sexual orientation. So just listeners, just a level set, you may have seen like an I and an A thrown in, and there's no perfect um, abbreviation to use, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's the one I tend to use that's most accepting most organizations use. So yeah, it's a dimension of diversity we should all be cognizant of. Um, Gen Z is entering the workforce, 20 to 30% of them identify depending on how you ask the question. Um, Primarily gender non-binary is something that's in gender fluidity and using they, them pronouns is something that's much more socially acceptable and not a new thing, just an acceptable thing nowadays. Um, And so Gen Z is really leaning into that. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to do to create more inclusion is 
you know, first of all, if you celebrate Pride Month, don't put your flag down July 1st, right? Like, if you want to be a good ally, show up year round. Um, that's known as rainbow washing, which you've probably seen a whole bunch of corporations, you know, change their logo to rainbows. And then, of course, we've seen the negative news stories with, you know, companies not getting it right, like Bud Light and Target. And all I'm going to say is, like, it's a human issue. I think people struggle. They're misunderstanding around LGBTQ plus is somehow we're going to sexualize the conversation. It is not, we're not just like with straight people, like talking about relationships and who you spend time with does not need to talk about what's happening in the bedroom. So that's a myth that I think we just need to dispel. That's not where the conversation is and where needs to go. Personal boundaries are always important. And then two, you know, I think sometimes you think to be an ally, I need to have a friend, a family member, or I'm closeted myself, you know, and engage in this conversation, or it's going to like be contagious. It's not a contagious thing. If you ask anybody that identifies in the community, they'd known this about themselves since they were itty bitty, or, you know, it had some sort of coming of age moment. Right. It's different for other coming out processes, very different for folks, but it is certainly not something that they caught from someone else. It just seems silly that I even have to dispel these myths today. But unfortunately, you know, we're seeing a lot of fear in our news cycle. And I'm seeing companies afraid to say or do the wrong thing at the very time when consumers are expecting you to speak up about social issues. They want to align their values with who they do business with. So gone are the days of like business and professional or separate. I don't think that was ever true, but we tried so hard to keep it separate. And now it's like a hodgepodge, which I feel for C-suite leaders that grew up in an environment where you didn't talk about these things. And now they're being forced or feel forced to talk about these things. Take a deep breath. You know, it's progress over perfection. You don't have to get this 100% right. If you have a bumble or a stumble, apologize, own it and get better. If you make a mistake, it's okay. But we have this like, oh, you know, you get in the news cycle and then it gets blown up and it's like this terrible thing. You know, I just wish companies that made, you know, recent mistakes and it's easy to find them, unfortunately, we just speak into the issues and say, we stand with the community. We stand with the community. We stand with our customers. I, that's what people want to hear from you. It's that simple. So beautiful. To finish up, and then I'm going to ask you about your book. But to finish up, I want, to, I want you to say something about being brave. And in your TEDx talk, your most recent one, you said... Um, being strong. So I'd like you to talk about being brave and being strong. Well, thanks for asking that. Yeah, we tend not to associate those words with women or certainly young girls. And that was something I noticed. Uh, my now nine-year-old, um, you know, when she was itty-bitty, I mean, I remember, you know, her being an infant reading books with her. And I just, at night, we just kind of developed this ritual. And for anyone who's seen the movie The Help, it, it is kind of, I guess, based on that with her words at night. But that, that is a, somewhat of a problematic film, so he's referencing it. But this part I really like. Uh -huh. And she said, you know, what we would say to her is that you're strong, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're funny, and you're kind, and you're brave. And it's just evolved over time. We don't do it every night now, but you know, a lot of times she'll say, mom, will you say my words to me? And then she likes to say them back to me. And we also have this practice with our two-year-old. She's the fun, fierce leader, which fierce <laughs> underscored. <laughs> no one will be leading her. She's going to be leading everybody. She is a, <laughs> oh my gosh, does not fit any of the gender norms of a female. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation. But I've seen it with my nine-year-old, you know, the word I dialed in on for my talk was strong. And I worked with a coach that 
we went through like my whole life and the messages I absorbed and it was the strength of my gender identity as a woman kind of flipping that narrative of I'm not weak, I'm not submissive. You know, I've always felt like strength was something that I could bring through a feminine lens. And I, I, again, back to what I was saying about women leaders now, we need charismatic, listening, empathetic, (laughs) kind human leaders right now more than ever. The world is demanding it. Uh And women are strong. I mean, look at how much crap we have to put up with. The reason we're so empathetic and emotionally intelligent is because we're put in conditions where we're not heard. So you have to empathize for survival. You have to tap into emotions because people are doing weird things around you. (laughs) It's conditioned responses, but out of, out of that oppression comes, you know, a strength and I'm not undermining the systems are very broken and we shouldn't be treating the women this way, but on the other side of it, we do kind of have this uh, superpower that we could tap into. Yeah. And being brave and saying something Mm -hmm. is the superpower we need to practice more. And as women, we're discouraged from doing that, right? Because we're called aggressive or she's just too much. I I can't believe the countless times I was heard that in corporate America, like, wow, she negotiated. Like, yeah. So like, I, I, what's the big deal? If he did it, you wouldn't even mention it. Stop it. Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much for taking this time and and talking to us today. I know it's going to help a lot of people that listen to the program. Um, and can you tell us the name of your book and the TEDx talk, which is really good. So both of them, please. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So really everything's on our website. So if you just want to go to nextpivotpoint.com, you can, yeah, we have a resources page, a lot of things I talked about today that are free downloadable for you. Um, like our inclusion on the show notes, I'll be sure that down. Perfect. Yep. Nextpivotpoint.com. And those are all our social handles too. And then. LinkedIn is where I post um, videos, you know, podcast episodes, things like this. So if you want to follow me there, I post several times a week, um, Julie Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. But yeah, our latest book, Allyship in Action, something I'm actively doing a lot of speaking about, talking with organizations and conferences. So if you know um, uh, folks that are looking for speakers, it's a really powerful keynote that very much, you did a great job with your questions today. It's exactly the kind of content that we talk about on the main stage. And I want to mention that the book is well-written and easy to read. Oh, thank so, you. Uh, definitely one that you should pick up if you haven't read it yet. It's It will help you to be brave and speak up. Thanks again, Julie. Thank you. Wait, keep listening. If you like this show and want to learn more on how to be a transformational leader, I have a special offer for you and a gift in just a moment. Thanks for following me on LinkedIn, where you can get more leadership tips from me. And also, I really appreciate you sharing, liking, and giving me a review in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Remember, if you consider yourself a current or future high-potential executive that wants to have influence, impact, and radically increase your income, I invite you to reach out to me on my contact page on womensleadershipsuccess.com so we can connect. Lastly, be sure and check out my Action for Traction for this episode in the show notes at womensleadershipsuccess.com. You will get three easy but powerful steps you can take immediately, plus some downloadable articles and videos 
based on this interview to help you truly be a transformational leader. Bye for now. See you soon. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.